Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode of Out West continues our series focusing on the WGA Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign, which encourages land managers, landowners, conservation groups, and NGOs to standardize and share invasive species data in the West. For today's episode, policy advisor Laura Cutlip sits down with state fish and game and invasive species specialists from Washington and Wyoming to highlight the importance of effective cross-boundary partnerships, communication, and data sharing to effect a successful rapid response to an invasive species emergency. In early spring of 2021, Highly invasive quagga and zebra mussels were found living in Marimo moss balls being sold by pet stores across the United States. Brian Nesvik and Joshua Leonard, the Director and Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator of Wyoming Game and Fish, are joined by Captain Eric Anderson with the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife and Justin Bush, the Washington Invasive Species Council Executive Coordinator, to discuss how Western states work together with various federal agencies and pet stores across the country to combat a potentially catastrophic spread of these mussels. I'm going to start with Eric Anderson. Eric, can you give us a little bit of background on your position as an officer in the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife and kind of what your day-to-day work in that position entails? Uh, Yes, thanks. So I'm actually a captain with our enforcement program, and I'm a fully commissioned fish and wildlife officer. Worked my way up through the ranks, and I run our aquatic invasive species enforcement and check station program. So Basically, I oversee the operation of three watercraft inspection stations. So when boats are coming into the state of Washington, it's a mandatory station that they have to stop. And we have inspectors take and look at the boat, make sure that it's not carrying any invasive species, in particular zebra and quagga mussels. And if they do find them on it, we can either quarantine or decontaminate the boat before we allow it to, to enter into Washington and enter our waters. I also oversee any type of enforcement actions that have to do with aquatic invasive species in the marketplace. So on this particular thing, we're going to talk about the moss balls. I uh, coordinated the enforcement response throughout Washington state as it occurred. Our next speaker, also from Washington, Justin Bush. Justin, can you also give us a little bit of background about yourself and your position as the executive coordinator for the Washington Invasive Species Council? My pleasure. The council was created by our state legislature in 2006, and it's tasked with policy-level direction, planning, and coordination for combating harmful invasive species and preventing those that may be harmful. The council considers the economy as well as the environment and invasive species, whether they're plants, animals, or pathogens, terrestrial as well as aquatic. To prevent invasive species impacts, the council breaks organizational silos And it provides a forum for agencies and stakeholders to collaboratively set policies and share successful approaches. The council works together with all state agencies to have a role in invasive species, as well as tribal nations, federal and local agencies, industry, and conservation partners. The council takes a really wide view 
and works across all missions and breaches silos so that we are working on the same page when we're addressing invasive species. We create a statewide strategy that we say sets the compass for everyone in dealing with this problem. Relating to emergencies, that shows the real value of Invasive Species Council because we have an existing relationship with all these agencies and other stakeholders. And in a moment's notice, we can get people on the phone, we can organize a response such as that we saw with the Merriman Mothball incident. Thank you, Justin. I'm going to go then to Josh Leonard, who is the uh, statewide aquatic invasive species coordinator for Wyoming uh, Game and Fish. And Joshua, if you could also talk a bit about how your position might differ from Justin's as a aquatic invasive species coordinator and just a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in the state of Vermont and zebra and quagga mussels first were established in the Great Lakes, kind of in that northeast part of the United States. So I had the, I guess, experience of growing up on, on, a, on a lake where I witnessed the infestations of zebra mussels and the kind of pre and post effects of, of that infestation. So I have some firsthand experience with them and have been able to use that in my day-to-day job as the aquatic invasive species coordinator here in, in Wyoming and been in that role since January of 2020. And in that role, I provide oversight of the implementation and budgetary operations of the AIS program from a statewide perspective and coordinate with other Western states AIS programs for a larger Western-wide AIS initiative. So our watercraft inspection program, similar to Eric's role in Washington, we have a kind of a border approach where we don't have mussels in Wyoming yet. And our biggest threat is obviously from them coming in from out of state. We have permanent check stations looking at watercraft movement or any type of conveyance that can move water and require inspection of mostly watercraft that are coming into Wyoming prior to launching within Wyoming. And they also boats that are traveling through. So in, in Wyoming, we have big interstate highways like I-80 and I-90 that both come in and through Wyoming. So you see a lot of cross-country movement. So even if you aren't stopping or planning to launch in Wyoming, if the check stations are open by law, you're required to stop. So our check stations are not only servicing our, our resources in Wyoming, but we're also protecting the, the greater Western initiative here in Wyoming. Uh, because a lot of states east of us don't really have an established program like we have. So we have kind of the first line of defense here in Wyoming. Great. Thank you, Josh. And Last and absolutely not least, Brian Nesvik, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself. You're currently the director of Wyoming Game and Fish. And so, again, a little background about yourself and also just as the director of a state fishing game department, kind of how that view has impacted your take on this whole, this whole situation. Yeah, so as the director of the agency, I have responsibility for oversight of our state's aquatic invasive species program. And Similar to Eric, I grew up as a game warden and worked all over the state doing game warden-like duties, and, and part of those were obviously enforcement. But now, you know, my responsibility is really oversight for all wildlife management in the state. We also have authority and a, and a charge to manage the waters of our state. And so it's interesting because aquatic invasive species, specifically quagga and zebra mussel infestations in Wyoming, have a very broad effect on multiple different agencies, multiple different stakeholder groups. But Game and Fish has been charged with taking this responsibility on. And so, you know, we've put people like Josh in place to oversee the program. He talked, you know, really thoroughly about our strategy for preventing them ever from coming into our state. 
you know, in my role, I have a responsibility to work with the other agencies or entities or stakeholders that could be affected by a coagula or zebra mussel infestation in Wyoming. Great. And for those listeners who are not necessarily in our world of invasive species that might be listening to this podcast, can you give a little bit of background, just kind of a brief overview of what we're talking about when we're referring to this quote-unquote mossballs situation? What we're talking about here is aquatic invasive species, and these are species that are not native to various parts of the U.S. And when I talk about Washington State here, it's a non-indigenous species that we're very concerned about. It's a small aquatic freshwater bivalve that entered the U.S. back in 1987, got into the Great Lakes, and quickly took over all the Great Lakes. So what we're what we're doing is we actually have regulations on it that that is not allowed in Washington. It's against the law to import it, introduce it, any way you, you try to bring it in. And so what, what happened with this is we had a situation where we found a new pathway. In March of this year, we got an alert from the federal system, the USGS, which was an aquatic invasive species reporting system, that a Quagga or zebra mussel was discovered by an employee in a pet store, and to be specific, Petco out of Seattle. And so they made a report on this situation, and it went through the system, ultimately alerting Washington State for us to respond to it, and it bloomed into a nationwide response. It turned out that these things were imported into the U.S. to several distributors and being widespread throughout contiguous U.S. and Canada. Our program's so centered around boats and watercraft, we really weren't thinking of aquarium and the pet trade as as much as we were as far as zebra and quagga mussel movement. There's obviously other AIS like snakeheads or, or goldfish or other aquarium type pets that are moved in that system or hobby, but we never really considered zebra and quagga mussels being a vector through aquarium trade. So we had to really think think broader and more outside of our normal realm of what we do as a program. So that's kind of how my role has changed since this whole thing happened. As Josh indicated, we were surprised. We never anticipated that pet trade as being a vector, but we really took the lead in mobilizing the state to do our, our level best to make sure that we responded quickly to this little mini crisis. So you've all spoke about how you were already focused on the mitigation of spread of these invasive mussels in your states and across the West and across the country. And uh, you were obviously focused on keeping them contained in a different manner. So I'm interested to hear if you remember how you first learned about the situation and what were those first steps that you took when you realized what was happening with this situation. So I can remember back actually what, what happened on this, and it's great that we got Justin on board with this because I work very closely with, with Justin with the Invasive Species Council. In fact, I'd have to say that we probably talk on a weekly basis about things that are coming down the pike, pun intended, where um, <laughs> this pike is, a, is an issue in Washington as well. But I was actually talking to him via video chat when... He got an alert via email from the USGS non-indigenous species alert line. And literally he goes, Hey, I just got this thing on my email. And I got an email at the same time from another state coordinator, Tom Wolf, out of the state of Montana, who had received it as well. 
And so we were able to act on it very quickly. Justin had the alert. I got an alert from Tom and we started discussing immediately as to how we needed to follow up on this. I turned around and immediately contacted our prevention side, our, our biologist, Jesse Schultz, and we started talking about, okay, I'm going to try to get an officer up to that Seattle store from Petco to verify exactly what this is. No matter what, you trust the information, but you still want to verify it. And luckily, since we have our own dispatch system and I can look on a computer screen and see where our officers were, I actually personally called Sergeant Eric Olson, who's a good friend of mine, and Eric was able to respond within 30 minutes. So we had uh, almost an immediate response of which Eric was able to confiscate 12 moss balls that he could see that did have remnants of zebra quagga mussel shells in them. And he talked with the store manager, found all the information that he could about Petco, the regional director and things like that, because we knew we were going to need to talk to them because we didn't think it was isolated. We were hoping it was isolated, but <laughs> it's a big chain store. And so he got that information, quickly forwarded it back to me. And then we got the moss balls down to Jesse Schultz, our biologist, for full identification of it to make sure that that is exactly what we had. So we were on it within a half hour of receiving the information. So the interesting thing from my perspective with that initial notification is because we share data and we share notifications across the West and we have these agreements in place, I was alerted by some Canadian partner that had sent me the email because they had received it. I think that really underscores the value of data sharing as well as those immediate notifications. The way I found out here in Wyoming was through an email from Eric. I want to say it was March 3rd and was like, well, that's interesting. I wonder if this is a bigger problem than just a localized Washington Petco store. Here in Wyoming, we have eight AIS specialists that work throughout the state. So I forwarded that on to those folks and just said, hey, I'm not sure if you have Petcos within these towns that you operate in, but if you do, it'd be really worthwhile for you to go and take a look and see if they have this product and see if there might be that infestation there. Shortly after that, I obviously ran that communication up the chain. So folks like Brian were apprised of what might be going on. Not shortly after, I think the first one we were able to get to is Rock Springs in Wyoming had Petco, our specialist there. Eric Hansen was able to quickly confirm that he was finding zebra mussel shells and fragments and even adults within the product. So we quickly learned that we were exposed then from there, kind of our emails, I think, started just flooding in from other states saying, hey, we got them, hey, we got them. And it just started confirming that this was a, a more nationwide problem than just even a, a Western-wide problem. It was going to be a, a long process and a, a bigger issue than we were planning on dealing with that day. Yeah, I think that's one of the more interesting things that I followed along with this, this circumstance is just how quickly it became known that many states had contaminated products in their stores. So are there other folks that through this process you became in closer contact with that would have been more beneficial to have communication with from the start? Or were the relationships that you had pretty adequate for having a very quick response to the issue? We actually <laughs> lucked out in this case in the fact that on the Washington State Invasive Species Council, there is a council member that is a member of the pet trade organization. However, and that's local. That's in the state of Washington. That's just starting to take off. 
the silver lining out of this was was we have talked in Washington many times about how do you engage the pet trade in this because we've seen them not as a an adversary in this obviously I don't want to indicate that but we've known that the pet trade could be a source for invasive species not just aquatic but terrestrial and we've always wanted to establish a connection to talk with them to get them to open their eyes about the potential of it not to squash it but to be able to make sure that they're incorporating their best practices when it comes to what species they're offering up and of these species that they're offering up for for sale, that they're also giving that information to the purchasers of it to make sure that they're being good consumers of this, that they don't turn around as well as have the saying where they dump the aquarium out when they're done with it in in the lake or turn the pet loose. And so that connection is is a vitally important one. And this did open the door nationwide. And I just want to see that that connection keeps going. One thing that comes to mind here is not all jurisdictions, not all states have the same level of urgency around this issue because some states have been infected for years. And so we learned after the fact that there probably was potentially some other states that had seen at least signs of this before all this came to light. And so, you know, one of my lessons learned is it would be good if through our associations as states, and I think it's occurred now, people realize how important it is to do a big information blitz to everybody if something like this shows up. We're hypersensitive here in Washington state because we've got the Columbia River Basin. (laughs) We we got 80% of it in our state and it's the last big river basin in the contiguous 48 that doesn't have these things. And we literally have got hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars at stake if zebra and quagga mussels get into the water because they'll affect the hydroelectric dams, they'll affect irrigation, and then they'll affect all the salmonid and the salmon recovery efforts that have been undertaken here for our ESA listed species. So we're, we're really hypersensitive about it. And, and like Brian was saying there, it's different for other states that have had these things in it for, for 30 years. So getting that, you know, kind of reestablishing that connection mm-hmm. and, and being able to say, hey, make sure you give us a heads up on this if, if you know something. And I think that's, as, as Brian is saying, they're starting to come around on it. I really want to express the fact that both Petco and PetSmart were so responsive in this situation, we were on tap with their regional and all the way back to corporate right off the bat. And they were doing everything that they could to work with us and to make what happened right again. They were caught just as, as a surprise as we were. So again, it should be noted that they, they were partners in this. And that was an example of stepping up to the plate. I'm going to build a little bit off what Eric said. I think that Wyoming took this very seriously to do that because we're obviously a headwater state for multiple basins, including the Columbia River Basin. So if they hadn't let us know and we became vulnerable and became infested in a place like Jackson Lake, Palisades Reservoir, the downstream effects would eventually catch up to someone down in Washington. So the importance for us was not only for our state, but also those other states surrounding us. And some of the communication, I mean, I think us as AIS coordinators in, in the West and everywhere, we're 
part of our job is to be good communicators, outreach, and educate folks. And we naturally like to talk. You get a group of folks like us in a room together, it's really hard to get a word in edgewise or, or meet a timeline in which we've set for an hour or two. And I think that just speaks highly to our ability to communicate to each other across the West. And this example of how we respond to the situation just highlights that perfectly. Definitely. The pet industry was our greatest partner in this response. They really came through in a big way, as well as our nurseries and getting the word out and spreading um, awareness as well as decontamination and disposal practices. But the point I also wanted to make was about that first detector and that person deserves an award. You know, this really underscores the value that the public plays as first detectors. We often say, if you see something, say something, report it to the Invasive Species Council or your local Department of Fish and Wildlife. And this is just another example of that really critical role that the public plays. And that one person that was aware and knew to say something in the state of Washington triggered an international response. I think that particularly with the work WGA does, we're working across state boundaries between state and federal agencies. But I think that often folks forget as well that when we're talking about cross-jurisdictional, cross-boundary communication, we're also talking about including local communities and lay people who might not necessarily be involved, but can be the linchpin in a certain situation, particularly this one. That being said, have you had discussions around kind of how those communication channels can be improved for potential future scenarios or just some of the education programs to make sure that folks who might not be dealing with this day-to-day know where to go and what to look for when, when invasive species might arise? I'll jump in on that one. We've assessed this this situation, you know, kind of kind of played the armchair quarterback afterwards, and we work really closely with we have the Columbia River Basin team, the CRBT, which is ran out of the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission, and we've had extensive discussions about what went right, what went wrong, and and I'm going to say that this actually went probably about as good as you could imagine for it to happen, given the way we discovered it, uh, how quickly the scope grew, and how quickly other agencies came online to take part in this. When you look at it, considering that within a day we had discovered it wasn't just Washington, that it was nationwide, that it was confirmed down in Florida in a pet store down there, and then the other states were coming on online almost that quick, that showed how quickly the word spread. And then to mobilize and start taking action, that almost happened immediately as well. As each state came online with with knowing it, they started doing their own response. And so I wanna wanna say that it it went really well. And a lot of the deficiencies are simply because of scope. I mean, literally when you're dealing with something that is all across the nation and in Canada, and you find it out that quick, how many jurisdictions come into play in that? And again, the key is communication. I think there has been a little bit better communication from the federal system. And I say that because we had recently had a load that was coming in in September of mothballs that were being imported. And obviously this is in response because of the mothball situation, but they were very clear and let us know that they were coming in. This is what's going to happen. This is what we're coming through. This is going what we're going to see. And we end up learning the other day that that load that came in ended up being inspected. They found two mussels. Now they're taking seizure of that of that load, either incinerate it or 
basically deport it back out to in Ukraine. So I think the communication there is, is good because of the outcome from that. And I hope that moving forward, we can maybe look at getting sourcing these moss balls, not from live water sources. I just don't ever see us or find a way that we can effectively be sourcing these things from the wild. And historically, they were farm-raised moss balls. And I think we need to get back to that practice to avoid this in the future. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm with Eric. I think the communication was key. Our experience in Washington is probably similar to most Western states, and is that the federal agencies are great partners. And this incident was just another convening of all the different organizations that have a role in preventing and stopping invasive species. And we had a similar experience with our State Department of Agriculture, where our authorities were split. And this incident brought together our Department of Agriculture, as well as our Department of Fish and Wildlife, to collaborate, share information about online quarantine enforcement, as well as some rulemaking around minimum mothballs at our state level. So I think every organization is doing the best it, it can. And these types of incidents are, are just a really great example of why we need to practice, why we need to have the data sharing agreements, why we need to have memorandums of understanding for response. And I also think the incident response coordination was key. And uh, in the Columbia River Basin, we've held numerous tabletop exercises stewarded by the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission, where we've talked about what we would do with invasive muscle response. And in 2019, the state of Washington Invasive Species Council and the Department of Fish and Wildlife held an operations-focused exercise practicing the on-the-ground aspect of that. And the lessons we learned from that, we applied to this incident. While it was a pathway we didn't consider we applied that training and that same type of response protocol and how we organized people and made decisions and communicated to the public to this incident. And that unfolded pretty quickly. Our emails and our phones were ringing off the hook and Captain Anderson and I connected. He was the most highly trained individual on team, as it were. And so he stepped in as the lead of the response team and we all then organized underneath him. And that, that's the way we're organized for the next two weeks. And so in the state of Washington, we believe that new invasive species are an emergency and we will respond to them as such. And this is just another example of that. When we initially had found out that these were likely in our state, you know, we kind of had three priorities. One, get them off the shelves immediately. Two, we needed to begin communication with the public to tell them the, the threat the potential ramifications and consequences, and then the how-to of how to dispose of them. And then three was to get the other agencies across the state who had some responsibility for infrastructure or water that could be affected on board. And very quickly after we discovered this, our governor appointed a, a task force of several of his cabinet members with the charge to go out and figure out how to respond to this thing. And and, and we did all those things simultaneously. We didn't begin the effort, though, to go out and start looking for them outside of pet stores till after we kind of took care of those three real high priorities. Some of the other agencies that had not ever really been aware of the threat from mussels, I think a lot of them were kind of like, you know, hey, it looks like you're overreacting a little bit here. But all of them realized after we did this education push and provided some good information on that. The consequences, I think all of them, for the most part, got on board. And we had, you know, hydroelectric power generation folks in the room, Department of Agriculture, the state parks, obviously, ourselves, 
and, and a variety of other folks, Homeland Security, were all put on this task force to do an immediate response. And I think it was effective. I think we did the right things. Coming out of this, the silver lining behind this whole Moscow situation, if we don't get an infestation because of it, is the media and outreach blitz that came with it reached so many more people that we typically don't reach with our watercraft inspection programs, whether it's aquarium hobbyist or those other state agencies' avenues and the way they helped us get that message out to their constituents. There was a lot more people talking about zebra mussels this summer at our boat inspection programs that probably had no idea what they were even were before moss balls. Um, and I'll admit, I didn't know what a moss ball was before March, and I kind of wish I didn't. But if we come out of this unscathed, I think that will be the, the ultimate win. I mean, our compliance, our check stations were way higher than they've ever been. And I, I can attribute that to some of the um, messaging and outreach, but also some of the partnerships and relationships we've built in that emergency response team that Brian was talking about. So I appreciate the view that this was a really successful response. And obviously that is what invasive species folks have been working for, preparing for an emergency rapid response and being able to deal with something like this as quickly as possible. As we all know, as soon as an invasive species gets into a new waterway or takes hold in a new piece of rangeland or whatnot, it is extremely hard to get them back out again. So stopping it before they actually take hold is obviously a very large part of invasive species management. So while this has been largely discussed as a successful effort, what other lessons were learned from your agencies through this process? Are there new tools that you have kind of utilized that you'll be thinking about or reaching to more quickly? You're trying to sell something as a problem, but no one can really see it until it becomes a problem. It's hard to make that sale unless you've been in back East or seen it. It's really hard to get people around to the idea that this is a problem. And I think that this problem on the front doorsteps of folks made them realize that they needed to, to address it. So we had our messaging up on those overhead message boards that our Department of Transportation typically uses for construction or other weather-related things. Working with them, we were able to get our message about our check stations up on those. People were figuring it out between the moss balls and seeing those overhead signs and, and stopping where in the past they might not have even known that this whole inspection program thing was, was even around. Because like I said, in Wyoming, we're probably the first line of defense on both any traffic heading west on 80 or 90 because they aren't hitting any other established programs. So like myself, being a fellow Easterner, I was totally naive that there was this sacred place out west that didn't have zebra quag muscles. One of the things that was reinforced is the mantra that anything that moves can move invasive species. And that's part of the challenge of being invasive species manager. There's known pathways such as uh, movement of watercraft across the United States, but there's also an infinite number of other pathways, and, and the mothball pathway was something that no one expected. And I think the takeaway for me is that we need to put more emphasis on pathways analysis and then also practicing response, because the next pathway is probably not going to be mothball. The next pathway will be something else that we didn't envision. But the teams that will be responding are the same, and um, those relationships are still going to be present. And so how do we maintain them? How do we uh, foster more collaboration and how do we try to think forward to uh, anticipate the next problem? One other thing that came out of this that I'm not sure how long Josh should know how long it would have taken us to figure this out, but we learned about some new technology in these portable eDNA readers 
as we really started probing and Josh and his team were probing around to try to find out a quick way to, to test water. We did have COVID testing going on in those water treatment plants already, but we were trying to figure out, you know, how's a really quick way to do this. And, and we came, came in contact with this new technology. It was expensive, but it was worth it. The Department of Health was not someone we were thinking in mind of folks we'd be working with in, in the aquatic invasive species world, but they were already at our water treatment facilities here in Wyoming. They were doing, they were calling these auto samplers that were taking basically samples of water in the water treatment facilities to look at predicting COVID spikes down the road through our wastewater treatment with the way aquariums are with uh, moving water through the systems, cleaning out at these pet stores, people dumping them down their toilets or down their sinks. That's just how aquarium people clean their tanks. So they knew that that was a potential vulnerability, but talking with the Department of Health, they were doing this COVID sampling and we were able to tap into this already ongoing sampling by taking some of their samples and then running them for basically the presence of zebra quagga muscle eDNA within the system. So our lab now processes the eDNA samples to detect whether they're in there or not. But this is going to be a long-term kind of ongoing thing where if we had a, a infestation and they were, it's not something we're going to detect. The longevity, the longer that we do sampling, the higher probability of detecting it is just be given the life cycle and the biology of, of zebra and quagga muscles is earlier on, you're probably less likely to, to detect it, but a year or two down the road, that's when you're most likely to detect it, just given their, their life cycles. So it was a really cool and unique outcome that you would have never thought would have been there. But, and also another silver lining to COVID, I guess, is if that COVID wasn't going on, that the ability to have done, been as effective at, at sampling the water treatment facilities would have been probably impossible, I guess, to say the least. And another thing too that we've learned was on top of the eDNA world are these little handheld eDNA units that Brian was touching on too, is the USGS is developing these units that are basically meant to be out in the field where you can take an eDNA sample and then get results within 40 minutes, which is really cool for some of our use here in Wyoming. We import fish, we import stuff from out of state. So my mind goes directly to testing those loads of fish that are coming in. But my also my mind in the future comes to, well, what if we can ever get that time down to a minute or less than five minutes because this is something we can use in our watercraft inspection program where we have water moving around in ballast water or bilge water obviously waiting making a constituent wait three minutes our check station for our machines to tell us yay or nay on eDNA is not reasonable to expect but as we know technology makes leaps and bounds and advances in really short time and I, I really hope that somehow we can get to a point where we can start utilizing that technology at our ports and entries and as a really quick screening tool. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously with improved technology comes improved accuracy and reduced time for data collection. And that's the kind of bottom line here is that communicating information, communicating accurate data is, is always going to be our friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West. WGA would like to thank Brian, Josh, Eric, and Justin for their remarkable insights into this issue and for sharing them with OutWest. This episode marks the end of year one of the Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign. To learn more about WGA's ongoing efforts heading into the campaign's second year, please visit westgov.org. Happy trails, everyone.